Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency or EIA. Now, Friday the 16th of September is the rather grand-sounding United Nations International Day for the Preservation of the Ozone Layer. And for us, it's an opportunity to look back at the Montreal Protocol as it nears its 35th anniversary. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and joining me today is climate campaigner Sophie Gagan to talk about the impact of the Protocol, which is rightly seen as the most successful international environmental agreement ever, and to look ahead at why it remains so vital for the planet's future. Sophie, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you for having me, as always. It's a pleasure to have you back. Now, to, to get us started, perhaps you could give us a potted history of the Montreal Protocol, why it was necessary in the first place and what it actually achieved. Of course, happy to. Um, a lot of people might have heard of the Montreal Protocol, or at least have heard of CFCs, um, potentially in terms of not being able to use certain spray deodorants or hairsprays back in the early 90s. Um, the reason for this is because they contained CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, and these are gases that are harmful to the ozone layer and were creating a hole in the ozone layer. Um, so were phased out by the Montreal Protocol. So after scientists raised the alarm on the damage these CFCs were causing to the ozone layer, all 197 countries of the world came together to agree the Montreal Protocol in 1987. Um, the ozone layer is a thin layer of gas um, in the upper atmosphere, which shields the planet's surface from harmful solar UV radiation, ultraviolet radiation, and all on life on Earth is dependent on the ozone layer. Um, so the Montreal Protocol has phased out 99% of all of these ozone-depleting substances, setting the ozone layer on the path to discovery. Um, as you said, it is the world's most successful environmental treaty, not just environmental treaty, the world's most successful treaty, um, and has been universally ratified. Um, so it's a, of huge importance. Um, the Montreal Protocol, after the CFCs were phased out, they then had to phase out the replacement gases, HCFCs, hydrochlorofluorocarbons, and they are currently phasing down the next generation of gases, which HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, very confusing, I know. Um, so they're phasing HFCs down because although HFCs don't damage the ozone layer, they are super polluting greenhouse gases, so have a huge impact on global warming and climate change. I'm I right in thinking that we and other organizations have been, um, well, for want of a better word, pestering uh, the Montreal Protocol to embrace climate change as well as ozone protection over, over recent years. I know there's been some push to get them to address HFCs because, as far as it strikes me, the international mechanism is already there. Um, it makes no sense to even a layman like me thinking that you know, you're going to create the Montreal Protocol Mark II specifically to address um, climate harming gases. So it would make more sense for you to bring it under the original institution here. Yeah. I mean, the Montreal Protocol has always been a climate treaty, essentially, because these first two gases, the CFCs and the HCFCs, they are ozone-depleting substances, but they are also uh, warming gases. So they have very high global warming potential, so which is kind of ton for ton um, how much they warm the atmosphere compared to CO2. So a lot of these CFCs have GWPs in the thousands, the many thousands. So the Montreal Protocol has always had climate impacts. Um, but yeah, with HFCs, it made sense for the Montreal Protocol to deal with them and move away from just being specifically about the ozone layer 
protection, although that is obviously something they still do, there is still action being taken on the HCFC phase down. Um, but yeah, it has a huge amount of support. The systems have been working very well. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so I think the Montreal Protocol does a lot more than just protect the ozone layer. And uh, the Kigali Amendment to phase down HFCs is a huge piece of climate legislation as well. Excellent. And, and just to make it nice and clear in, in people's heads um, as to how successful this particular instrument was back when it was um, agreed, um, what would the world have been like had there not been a Montreal Protocol to stop us punching even more and bigger holes in the ozone layer? What would, if we did nothing about it back in the day that it was set up, what would have been the immediate impacts from that? Um, without the Montreal Protocol, ozone depletion would have trebled the peak value of UV radiation. And so the Antarctic ozone hole, which was the one of biggest concern, would have been about 40% larger by 2013. This would have had disastrous effects on humans, ecosystems, and the planet's health overall. Um, so the Montreal Protocol has had enormous success, not just in protecting the ozone layer, but it has saved the lives of millions and helped avert even more catastrophic global warming than would have occurred without it. Just a couple little facts to throw at you. Um, the global phase out of CFCs, this is just CFCs, has resulted in an estimated $1.8 trillion in health benefits through the avoidance of skin cancer and cataracts. So that UV radiation that the ozone layer protects us from is a significant causer of melanoma, cataracts, and other um, health conditions as well, which the Montreal Protocol has avoided. Um, the Montreal Protocol also contributes to 13 out of the 17 sustainable development goals, including clean energy, no poverty, zero hunger, um, and climate action, of course. A little bit nerdier um, is how the Montreal Protocol has protected ecosystems. So this UVB radiation that comes in when the ozone layer is depleted, not only affects humans' health, but it also affects plants' ability to store carbon. So plants are a huge carbon sink in our environment. So a lot of the carbon that would otherwise be emitted to the atmosphere is stored in plants and also in um, marine ecosystems as well. Without the ozone layer's protection, the damage and impact of this high of these high UVB levels um, would have led to, instead of the carbon being uh, stored in the plants, being released to the atmosphere and causing warming of 0.85 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So that's a huge chunk of warming that's been avoided by the Montreal Protocol. And that's not even considering the benefits um, on marine life as well, um, thanks to this reduction in UV radiation. Um, in terms of climate impacts, um, like I said, ozone depleting substances are also terrible greenhouse gases. Um, and so actions to cut the use of CFCs and other ozone depleting substances under the Montreal Protocol have avoided significant uh, greenhouse gas emissions and substantial warming. Without the Montreal Protocol, CFC emissions would have led to 1.7 degrees of warming by 2100. Um, or kind of in, put another way, ozone depleting emissions without the Montreal Protocol would have reached up to 18 gigatons of CO2 equivalent a year in 2010, which is about half of global annual CO2 emissions at that time. So it's a huge amount of emissions averted. And then when talking about the Kigali Amendment to phase down HFCs, this is expected to reduce the impact of HFCs on future warming by up to half a degree.
So it's not exaggerating it to say that every single life form on the planet owes a debt of gratitude to the protocol. Very much so. The much more protocol what has it's done already. Yeah, <laughs> it's done a lot more than I think it ever signed on to do, probably. Now, the theme for this year's Ozone Day is the Montreal Protocol at 35, Global Cooperation Protecting Life on Earth. Um, while it's a fact the planet is caught in the grip of several existential crises now, um, there's climate change, the biodiversity loss, and of course there's the problems with failing oceans with a degree of pollution from plastic and other sources um, that they're experiencing. What do you think a 35-year-old global agreement can actually do to help um, against that backdrop? I mean, like I've said, all of those successes that have happened um, are huge and they've taken 35 years to get there. But the Montreal Protocol is constantly evolving. It's constantly kind of assessing new gases, new threats, new information from scientists, from NGOs, from kind of the community at large and really kind of finding new ways to protect the ozone layer, to retain the successes, and to um, mitigate climate change even further. So with these, they've successfully gone through two different phase out uh, periods and are now phasing down HFCs. Uh, they've also started looking at the energy efficiency side of cooling equipment in tandem with these phase downs, which could potentially double the climate impact of the Kigali Amendment. So while the Montreal Protocol has been around for a while, 35 years old. Um, it has done a lot and it still has a lot more to do with the HSC phase down. It's a whole different ball game um, in terms of how we will measure emissions, how we'll trace emissions, how we'll enforce the phase down um, and how we will um, make sure that kind of the monitoring and enforcement is done correctly because it is quite a different um, state of affairs than for the previous phase outs of ozone depleting substances. Yeah, the protocol is obviously uh, a vital tool for mankind in, in the last three decades and, and change but as, as we focus on um, today on its successes um, historically how strong is it in 2022? Um, is it fit for purpose now or is there more that needs to be done to make it better in that respect? Um, it's a good question and something that we have been focusing quite a lot on at the moment at EIA. Um, 35 years, the Montreal Protocol has been a huge success. However, it has been tested um, quite rigorously in the last few years um, and some quite worrying information is coming to light that maybe raises some quite hard questions for the Montreal Protocol to have to address to make sure that it is fit for purpose going forwards. I'd say that most notably is uh, was the unexpected emissions of CFC 11 in 2018. So this was flagged by scientists that there was this huge spike in CFC 11 mission, emissions um, that was caught in atmospheric monitoring. So CFC and these were banned. Is that is that correct at the time? Yes. Yeah, so CFC eleven is an ozone depleting substance, and production of all CFCs were banned from twenty ten. So essentially, there should be basically zero production of this gas. However, scientists were finding these huge amounts of emissions in the atmosphere, and no one really could explain where they were coming from. Uh, CFC eleven also has a global warming potential of over five and a half thousand. So it's a huge climate um, damaging gas as well. Uh, once we saw what the scientists had said, EIA carried out some undercover investigations in China 
Um, and we found that we found evidence from 18 different companies in 10 different provinces confirming the use of CSC 11 as a blowing agent uh, for the manufacture of foams to insulate buildings and appliances. So this is a pretty standard use of CFC 11, but it should not be happening. Um, that the, the refrigerant gas used should not have been CFC 11. It should have been one of the replacements that came afterwards. Um, so upon finding this, we published two reports um, for the parties and the Montreal Protocol was very, very shocked. All parties were shocked by this discovery and really did leap into action, um, including China themselves took a lot of action to crack down on this illegal production. Uh, CFC 11 emissions have declined again in 2019, but there are still unanswered questions that need to be addressed to avoid this happening again. Um, alongside that, scientists also found that emissions of CFC 12 and CFC 113, two other ozone depleting substances that should have been banned, um, were also decreasing more slowly than they should, raising the possibility of new illegal production in these gases as well. Um, so given their global warming potential, the emissions of these three gases from 2014 to 2016 totaled more than a billion tons of CO2 equivalent, which is more than twice the annual UK greenhouse gas emissions. This is a huge climate crime, essentially. Um, there are other unexplained emissions being investigated at the moment, um, which the Montreal Protocol is going to have to address and deal with quite urgently. Um, I'll rattle off a few and try and keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe leave the acronyms and the, the deep science so. <laughs> Not possible. Um, so we have carbon tetrachloride, which is another gas regulated by the Montreal Protocol with a large GWP global warming potential as well. Currently, there's a huge discrepancy between the bottom up emissions estimates and the top down estimates. So what we're seeing in the atmosphere versus what is being reported by parties as being produced. Um, feedstocks or the uses of this gas CTC have reported to have grown 70% between 2015 and 2019. So this is a problem area because this is a lot of emissions. Um, there's also rising emissions of a gas called HCFC-141B. So this is an ozone depleting substance as well. Um, and the rise in this gas coincides with the decline in CFC-11. So there is a large possibility that the illegal CFC-11 has just been replaced with illegal HCFC-141B. Not a great substitute. Uh, one more, one more big one. Uh, so one of the other really big scandals that is of huge concern is that of HFC-23. So HFC-23 is essentially created in the manufacture of another refrigerant gas, HCFC-22. It has the highest global warming potential among HFCs at 14,600. This is a hugely climate damaging gas. And as a result, there were measures put in place by um, HCFC-22 producing countries, um, which should have seen the emissions of 23 dropped by 87% between 2014 and 2017. However, in 2018, while HFC 23 emissions were at the highest level in history, inventory-based emissions were at the lowest level in 17 years. There's a huge discrepancy 
between what is happening here. The difference suggests an additional 309 million tons of CO2 equivalent emissions were added to the atmosphere between 2015 and 2017. So that's roughly the total greenhouse gas emissions from Spain in 2017. These are big numbers we're talking. Yeah, who's actually manufacturing um, all, all these gases and chemicals? I mean, I presume if it's happening on this kind of scale, it must be being produced on an industrial scale. You would imagine, or I would imagine, countries would be aware of it. Um, is, is that the case, or is it all being done clandestinely? So this is the thing. I think a lot more data is needed, a lot more attention is needed, and this is where the Montreal Protocol can come in and request parties to look at their HCFC 22 production and make sure that the 23 byproduct is being destroyed properly. Um, there was a big kind of fiscal incentive back in the day under the Montreal Protocol to destroy HFC 23 byproduct emissions. It doesn't seem like it's happening based on the emissions they're seeing. So either this abatement is not happening um, as it's been reported was there not a scandal involving the production of HFC 23 just for the value of destroying it? People were actually manufacturing the HCFC 22, if that's right, and just so they could then get paid to destroy the byproduct. Yes. Which just seems insane. I mean, is that still a factor? Is that still going on? No. So the financial incentive was stopped due to the fact that it was kind of being played. Being gamed by everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that financial incentive was stopped, but all of the companies the obligation remained. They just weren't going to be paid for it. So the main HCFC 22 product producing countries are India and China, I believe, and both report very low 23 emissions. However, what we're seeing in the atmosphere begs to differ. So again, this is something that the Montreal Protocol needs to look at much more closely, figure out where the problem is, and then look at how to address it effectively. Um, the last point is that of refrigerant banks. So we use the term banks to talk about stored refrigerant gases, essentially. So that which is in the equipment that is currently in use. So in your home air conditioner, in your supermarket refrigerator, um, those would all count as banks, but also all refrigerants that are in equipment in landfill um, and are yet to be disposed of correctly. Um, so these banks leak their emissions throughout, kind of just slowly um, into the atmosphere. Historically, the Montreal Protocol has only controlled production and consumption of gases, not the emissions. So banks is this kind of gray area that's not covered by the Montreal Protocol. However, it's a massive and time-limited climate mitigation opportunity. Um, and these, these banks can have a huge impact both on the ozone layer and on climate action as well. It's been said that emissions from the banks of CFCs could potentially delay Antarctic ozone hole recovery by about six years. So what we need to see is a global framework to recover and destroy ozone depleting substances and HFCs. Um, this is very urgent. And like I said, it's time limited. Um, these banks will grow and they'll kind of emit as they're lying around. So EIA is a member of the Climate Ozone Protection Alliance, the newly formed COPA, um, which is hoping to address this issue. Fantastic. That brings me on neatly to my next one, which is, given all the, um, the various problems you've just outlined, what do you think can, can be done to address them conclusively under, in the, within the context of the Montreal Protocol? Is this something that we can expand the protocol to give it the teeth to go after these kind of issues? I think the good news is that 
all of these issues can be dealt with effectively within the Montreal Protocol. There's no real need to expand it. They can, all of this can happen. Um, it just requires kind of a comprehensive look at the institutions of the Montreal Protocol to see where the weaknesses lie and how they can be remedied. Um, so this is something EIA is has been working on for a few years now to kind of start that ball rolling in terms of the parties looking inwards and looking at how to strengthen the monitoring, the reporting, the enforcement, the verification, um, and ensure that these emission scandals like the CFC 11 or what we're seeing with HFC 23 these things don't happen again and don't derail the success of the Montreal Protocol. So we want to make sure that the Montreal Protocol is fit for purpose, not only to avoid these scandals happening again, but the Montreal Protocol is now entering a kind of pivotal moment as it introduces the Kigali Amendment. We're going to see the HCFC phase out is still ongoing in developing countries and A5 countries. And now there's going to be a kind of parallel actions on the HFC phase down. So it's two different scopes of work working in tandem. So there's a lot of coordination that's needed um, and there's a lot of potential there to kind of leapfrog technologies to the best available technology and really save a lot of emissions. Um, but the HFC phase down introduces, kind of expands the scope and expands the complexity of the work. It's not a phase out, it's a phase down. There are a lot more gases in question. There are a lot more blends of gases in question. And so atmospheric monitoring is going to become even more difficult. Um, so strengthening the Montreal Protocol is key now, quite urgently, so that as the HFC phase down begins in earnest with the developing countries, everything is in place to make sure it goes smoothly. With atmospheric monitoring, like I just mentioned, it's going to be, become more difficult. But even as it is now, there are huge regional gaps in what we can monitor. Um, large areas of the world do not have any monitoring capabilities, which makes it really difficult to assess the situation and assess the success of the Montreal Protocol, but also to pinpoint issue areas when these issues arrive. For example, with the CFC 11 emissions, it this, the science couldn't show exactly where the emissions were coming from. The investigation had to do that as well to kind of get the on-the-ground information. So the parties to Montreal Protocol are currently working on addressing gaps in monitoring, and that's a key kind of priority for them, which is great. There are other issues concerning kind of the compliance procedure, defining illegal trade. Currently, actions on illegal trade are kind of the responsibility of parties, but it's also voluntary and there's not a lot of follow-up or monitoring on actions. The Montreal Protocol has its own implementation committee, which deals with certain issues. However, it's not a very transparent committee. External CS, uh, civil society organizations aren't allowed access to it. Um, and there's no whistleblowing procedure. And like I said with CFC 11, the issue was spotted by independent scientists and then an independent NGO organization, us, went in and did the investigation. So the fact that there's no whistleblowing procedure within this organization, within this kind of system, obviously that's a significant oversight because that's where we got our information. Um, but I mean, there are, there are challenges, like I said, and a lot of these can be dealt with by the Montreal Protocol, but it will require new investment in the Montreal Protocol institutions and the processes. 
um, including increased funding for institutional strengthening in the kind of A5 countries or the developing countries so that kind of their work while doing the HCFC phase out with the HFC phase down can be done as successfully as possible and that the kind of monitoring and enforcement can be ongoing and can be um, can work very well essentially. And this goes back to the, the leapfrogging you mentioned earlier where countries that are in the process of getting rid of HCFCs instead of transitioning to the equally damaging, even more damaging HFCs, um, which are produced by the same chemical corporations, obviously, because they want to keep their profits flowing. Um, they could actually just leapfrog right over those straight into natural refrigerants and, and alternatives that don't mess up the planet. Yeah, very much so. There's a huge leapfrogging opportunity, both for the climate, but also financially. Um, obviously, one transition is cheaper than two. Um, it's also faster and it's a lot easier and yeah, just skipping the whole transition into HFCs and going straight to the future proof natural refrigerants is the best option. Obviously and time is pressing and time is pressing. <laughs> and also you can increase energy efficiency at the same time. Um, you can make sure that all your kind of workforce is trained appropriately to work with them. So yeah, leapfrogging is a huge opportunity that the Montreal protocol is looking at, but kind of maybe needs to do more work on, especially on the financing side. So uh, a, f a final point, um, what do you think the international community can actually learn from the Montreal Protocol? What are the big takeaways that we should be taking away um, as we look at it and its successes and its structure and how it's operated and how it's set up and how it's been adapted? Um, do you think there's uh, much there we can use to apply elsewhere in the world? Definitely. I think the Montreal Protocol, I know that I've just bashed it a little bit, but it really is such an important piece of kind of such an important international treaty for the climate for the ozone and it's kind of an example of what can be done and should be done the montreal protocol is universally ratified and supported globally a fun fact people love to throw around is the montreal protocol was ratified when the u.s had a republican president and the uk had a tory prime minister these are not kind of classically climate friendly positions but, i suppose yeah. but it was thatcher and reagan that were in power when the montreal protocol was ratified the montreal protocol has support of government policymakers industry ngos it's very rare that everyone is on board at the same time and it's kind of the magic of the montreal protocol it's also been very flexible it's pivoted with the new scientific information that's come to light from cfcs to hcfcs hcfc yeah hcfcs got confused myself <laughs> and when they <laughs> so many acronyms <laughs> and then they had to be phased out because they realized that they were also depleting the ozone layer hfcs were introduced we then realized very quickly that they had huge global warming potentials huge impact on the climate so they're being phased down now with the next refrigerant whether kind of ideally it's natural refrigerants but there's also this new family of synthetic refrigerants called hfos um being sold and marketed by these same refrigerant companies that also that have made hfcs hcfcs yeah. and cfcs and hfos while they have very low global warming potential do have potentially huge environmental impacts so it might be that the Montreal protocol in 10 years has to phase those down as well we'll see but it's been flexible it's gone through these huge changes and it's managed to kind of keep on track and keep doing more and more. Even with the kind of um, institutional strengthening that I was just talking about, those discussions have begun. The parties are aware that these things need to happen. And while discussions would have been delayed for a few years because of COVID, 
in the last meeting in July, um, the party set up an informal kind of working group where they started discussing and brainstorming areas that do need to be looked at to be strengthened and to make sure that the protocol is fit for purpose. The Montreal Protocol has always been ambitious and has a true sense of cooperation. Nobody wants any of the countries to fail because it has such important global um, impacts of the ozone layer. It affects everybody on the planet, not just one country. So there is that sense of international cooperation. Um, also, the delegates working on the Montreal Protocol are extremely dedicated, and many of them have been working on this piece of work for decades. There's such strong institutional knowledge within this quite small group of people. It's very, very impressive. Um, so as the Montreal Protocol celebrates its 35th, 35 years of international cooperation, um, I think it's a great example of what can be achieved. And we hope that it can continue to be a beacon of success for other treaties to follow. Fantastic. And amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Sophie, for joining us today. I think I'll actually be sleeping a little bit better tonight <laughs> with the knowledge that there's something out there bigger that'll get after us. Mm -hmm. um, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes. And do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thank you very much for joining us today. And wherever you are, stay safe out there.